right, I think we're rolling. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Peace and love. Welcome back to the Travelers Podcast. I'm Brother Ali. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. I just, there's no way for me to describe and really convey how grateful I am that you are here and that you're listening and that you're here from the beginning of this journey. You know, I really intend to stick with this. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time, to have this opportunity to connect to this container, this platform, this touch point. Um, you know, I've, I've always wanted another way to connect more regularly and more frequently and with the people that listen to me and with the people that give me their time and their intention, their attention, um, their care, their concern. For me, it's always been about connecting. My whole time on the microphone, like I've always been in a room full of people talking to them, like from the time I was a little kid. Like I would get on the mic at church, I would get on the mic. Anytime there was a microphone, I was trying to see how I could get on it. And my wife always just says to me, man, whatever you're doing, it seems like there's just gonna be a room full of people listening to you talk about it. And I've just always, that's been my reality. And, uh, you know, there's been times in my life when I was an imam, like I worked full time at a mosque. I gave the sermons, I taught the classes, I helped people convert. Um, I was there when people were born. I helped people, you know, officiated marriages. I was there when people died. Like I've washed my friends' bodies when they died and I buried them with my own hands. Um, you know, and I've led those services from the, like when I was young, like when I was 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. And then I've also always made music from the, the earliest time that I can remember myself. And I've performed and got up and, you know, anywhere there was a cypher or a battle or a talent show or a dance or a party, I was on the mic. And then the last 20 years of my life has also been, I've been a professional, like, touring artist. That's how I've fed myself and my family. So now this podcast thing is just one more. But all of those are really about connecting. And that's what's always mattered more to me than anything else is the meaning of it all, you know, to to be accepted and to learn about other people and to be understood and to understand them and to really um, explore the meaning of life by connecting with other people. That's what my greatest friendships are like. That's what my greatest relationships are like. That's at the heart of all the stuff that I've wanted to do. It's just different forms of expressing and exploring myself and then finding reflections of that in other people. So these conversations and these reflections on this podcast, that's really what it is. And so I'm just very grateful. You know, I've, I have an audience and I'm really grateful to have that, whether it's like across social media platforms. I don't know how many of them are the same people, but it's like 500,000 people and you know millions of streams and youtube views and you know we we've toured constantly when i think about how many people i see and how many people are like looking back at me over the course of a tour you know 200 to 1000 and sometimes more people in a room every single night like looking back at me on tour and we get to the end of the tour and you look at the numbers for like this is how many tickets we sold over the course of the tour and it's thousands of people and it, it just, it's very beautiful to me. But it's like, man, whether it's thousands or whether it's one, uh, you know, and, and there are listeners that can attest to the fact that they hit me up and, you know, we moved on maybe on social media or something and we moved the conversation to like WhatsApp or, you know, and then we send voice notes to each other over the course of years. And there's like f- people that started out as listeners and now then they've like stayed at my house with my family and, 
It's just really about connecting for me. And what I've always really wanted is that I never want to be forced on anybody as a, as a creator, as a communicator, as a content person, if you want to call it that. I've never wanted to be forced on other people because I, I resent that when that's done to me. You know what I'm saying? Like if somebody is, what they say now, like living rent-free in my head, there's songs that I'm like, I, make your music, do your thing. But I don't. I wish I didn't know this song. Like I wish this thing wasn't part of my mind and my heart the way that it is. There's music I know that I kind of resent the fact that this was forced on me. But what I have always wanted is for the people that would appreciate and benefit from and, and also want to connect with me. It's like, I don't want to be forced on anybody, but if somebody wants to connect with what I'm intending and what I'm attempting, I want those people to at least have access to it and know that it exists. And so, again, you know, I just ask that you, if you think that there are people in your life that would appreciate this and would dig it, please feel free to share it with them. And please feel free to like and comment and subscribe and all that stuff. I heard podcasters say that for years and it just always kind of washed over me. Like there's podcasts that I love that I, it, it, I, I had to intentionally be like, yo, let me share this. Let me share uh, Open Mike Eagles podcast. What had happened was, you know what I mean? Let me, let me make sure that I share the things that are dope to me that aren't on major platforms. And so I'm asking the same of you. We did an episode last week, the first one like it, where I turned the camera off. It's just me on the mic. There's not a, a, a guest. And that's the, what we're doing again this week. We had really great response from that. And there are people that are like, yo, I really appreciate it just getting to chop it up with you and just, just connecting one-on-one. So I think what we'll do is we'll have some of these episodes, inshallah, where I'll just talk and I'll reflect on things that are, you've asked and people that have asked me about or things that are on my heart and my mind that I want to share. And then we'll also have conversations. You know, one of the intentions of this thing is that the people that are in my life are amazing. And some of them are well-known, but you know, as much as people say, don't meet your heroes, that's not been my experience because Chuck D is actually better um, off the mic than he is on the mic. And he's amazing on the mic. And a lot of my religious teachers are that way too, for as amazing as they are when they're at a retreat or they're giving a, a lecture or teaching a class, they're incredible. And that's one version of who they are. But then the fact that I get to kick it with them at three o'clock in the morning, and like I know them when they're mad, and I know them when they're being silly, and I know them when they're tired, and I know them, and I'd see how amazing they are, you know, whether they're community people or artists. And then there are some people that's like, I know that a lot of people don't know who they are, but I feel like the world should know who they are. And anybody that knows me, it's like, man, I'm so happy to share these people with you. It's such an honor to to just connect. Connect, 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 connect. That's what it's really about. We're co-travelers in the in the journey of life, man. And I use the word journey a lot. And, you know, it might sound like a like a brother Ali word, <laughs> but like but it's real. It's real to me. You know, the the great um, Sufis in the Islamic tradition remind us that the eyes are what we use to see everything and the ears. And, you know, this is how we perceive and this is how we know what we know. But our eyes have seen everything, but we've never seen our own face. Like you've never seen your own face. Neither one of us have without the help of some sort of instrument. So like I see myself in a mirror. But that's not the same as someone gazing upon my face. And when I look at someone, 
You know, I look at my children and they've never seen themselves and they look at me and I've never seen myself. We need some sort of device and the best way to see ourselves is in the reflection of another person. You know, the way that I'm impacting them, the way that I'm affecting them, I can only really know it by seeing it in them. You know, and we don't remember being born. That's something that the Quran reminds us. We do not remember when we were here. We see other people be born. And everybody that's delivered their own children or been there for the birth of their own children or, you know, given birth, they, they will tell you. And if you've been through this, you know that you will never view yourself the same way. And you understand your parents differently. You understand your life differently. Uh, we won't be able to bury ourselves, but I've buried my friends. I've literally physically buried them with my own hands. When Muslims are, die, we don't embalm and we don't send them to the coroner. We take our, the, the bodies of our friends and our loved ones and we wash them, you know, and we wrap them in, in cloth and we perfume them. And then we put them in the ground with our hands. And if we can do it without any type of container or a coffin or casket, that's what we prefer. And we put them in the, in, and we lodge them in the ground facing Mecca. And then with our own hands, we bury them ourselves. And it's like you have a different perspective about the fact that I'm going in that hole. It's a very short time between womb and tomb. And I can't understand myself without sharing life with other people and reflecting with them. And that's really what it's about more than anything else in the world. And I'm just really grateful and blessed to be on this journey with you. So last week we did our first Ask Me Anything episode and I got a lot of questions about Islam. This is the month of Ramadan and so I'm going to take this opportunity to just kick it and chop it up and talk with you about this spiritual journey that I've been on for almost 30 years. Um, it's something that I've just found profound beauty in and it's something that... I'm just so grateful for like I try to imagine myself look if I didn't have this thing because like you know I travel all over the world and music is a universal language and like imagine if you didn't have music like whatever music means to you imagine if you didn't have music like I cannot imagine what it would be like what my heart would be like what my life would be like without the gift of this tradition because I travel around the world and there are people that I like I don't know their names, I don't know where they're from, I don't know their language, but there really is a very deep bond of respect and love between people based on the type of things I'm talking about. It's it's really such a universal religion. Um it's really based in the oneness of the creator. It's based in the oneness that like there is one source for everything that exists. That source is one. And also the creation is one. And also the human family is one. And yeah, there are there are differences that we have. You know, some of us are enemies. But even our enemies are from us and we're from them. You know, even the people we oppose the most. Like there, just the reality of life is there's going to be people that we oppose and there's going to be people that oppose us. There's going to be people that hate us. But we have a oneness with those people. The Muslims, I'm going to get emotional. Like I, I say this to my friends all the time. 
and actually one of one of my Muslim sisters, there's a sister uh, in uh, DC named Lauren. She has her and her husband, beautiful people. Uh, they run a, a community called Center DC, where they just bring Muslims together. They're not pretending to be scholars. You know, they're they're very well educated people. They're not trying to be anybody's leader or teacher or anything like that. They're just real, true community servants, and I love them so much. Um, a black brother named Muhammad, a white sister named named Lauren. I think they're both converts, actually. And they have a beautiful daughter and um, just, yeah, I love them so much. But Lauren is like me. They were like, she cries a lot. And there was one time where she was leading a group and she was like, okay, you guys, I just want you to know I'm going to cry, but I'm good. Like, <laughs> so like I, I like picked her pocket on that. I say that all the time. I'm going to, I'm going to cry, but I'm good. And it's just because whenever I'm talking about something that means, you know, this much to me, like I feel it. And so I cry. The Muslims believe, like what we're told in the Quran, is that all of the human beings that ever lived, that are living now and have ever lived and will ever live, that before we were in this realm that we're in now, we were all together and we were witnessing the divine. And that place before we got here, that place was nothing but divine witnessing. There was no deprivation, there was no lies, there was no deception. Um, things were as they should be. And that's why when we get to this realm, things are as they were, uh, as they are supposed to be for this test, for this challenge, for the revelation about ourselves that happens in this time, in this worldly life, in this what we call the dunya this place where we're in between where we come from and where we're going. This is the realm where there is deception, where there are lies, where we forget, where, where we forget what's most important and we get caught up and tricked and distracted. And we lie to ourselves and we lie to each other. And, you know, we have these, these you know, wormhole, rabbit hole distractions that we go down and we spend our lives bumping our heads and hitting rock bottom and, you know, just having these crazy revelations about like when, you know, when you get smacked in the face with reality, that's what this place is. And so when we get here, the, the reason that so many of us feel like, man, what the hell is going on? Like, am I crazy or is this world crazy? Yes, this world is crazy because what the Muslims believe and a lot of the wisdom traditions on the level of spirituality, on the level of meaning, they are really united. A lot of them believe that we were somewhere before we got here. And so the, 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 the feeling that we have that there are certain things that are beautiful and virtuous and like how universal those things are. Like bravery looks different in different cultures and different traditions and different societies, but everybody agrees that bravery is respectable and cowardice is not. That generosity is beautiful and stinginess is not. Everybody agrees that being, being truthful and being honest and being sincere uh, that that's priceless. Everybody knows that. So like whether you agree with a person or not, if they're being sincere, there's something that just affects the heart about that, that makes it like impossible to not w embrace them. Like if their heart is open and they're being real, even if you disagree with all the words coming out of their face, like it's just impossible to not embrace a person like that. The Muslims believe that this comes from, and this is rooted in the reality and based in the fact that we were together 
and, and we were witnessing divine beauty and we were witnessing unabashed truth in that moment. And what, what the Creator says to us in the Quran is that the Creator asked all of us collectively, am I not sustaining you? Am I not feeding you? You know, sometimes it's translated as Lord. And we'll get to that in a second. Like a lot of these words are difficult though. Um, the language around religion is really tough for people. And I, I completely understand that. Like anybody that's skeptical of religion, anybody that, um, you know, are just like, yeah, I don't know. I just can't. I can't. I, trust me, I, I feel you. I understand you. Like I get you, I respect where you're coming from. People have had bad experiences personally as families. People have had bad experiences, whole societies, whole civilizations have had bad experiences. I feel you, but it's just like, man, but I am beholden to the fact that I've witnessed so much truth in this tradition. And it's made me respect the truth in other traditions as well, you know? Um, so the language around these things is difficult because I'm very comfortable with the word God. I'm very comfortable with the word Lord. I'm very comfortable with the idea of, you know, sin and th th this worldly life and, you know, all this stuff. But I understand this has tremendous baggage for people. And it's one of the things when you talk about religion, I'm going to get back. This is a tangent a little bit, but it's one of the things I wanted to make sure to say is that You know, I live in Istanbul, Turkey now, right? And Istanbul is such a place where like opposites meet and coexist. So half the cities in Europe, part of the cities in Asia. Um, it's where East meets West. It's European and it's Middle Eastern at the same time. It's modern and pre-modern at the same time. It's Christian and it's Muslim at the same time. And it's religious and secular. It's the home of the Ottoman Empire. It's also the place that was never conquered by Europeans. But the person that founded the nation state of Turkey, he was a secularist. And I don't know if it's half and half. I don't know the numbers. But I know that there's a very strong portion of the Turkish people that feel deeply connected to Islam. And they love it. And they're beautiful people. And they practice it. And I'm inspired by them. And I live with them because of, I, wanna, I want to like learn from them. And I want to be with them. And then I don't know if it's half, but a lot of the Turks like want to be secular. And they're like, man, they, they, they actually feel like Islam held them back in competing with the West. And that was the feeling of the person that established the country. He disbanded the Ottoman Empire, the caliphate, and he set up a nation state, a secular nation state of Turkey. And so Turkey is that. And, and man, those people though are still dope. Like they're really beautiful people and I really admire them and I really respect them. And man, I... I hope I don't ever come across condescending of people that are secularists. Because like I said, I get it. But what I do know, what I've learned from being in Turkey is that the people that feel like they're secular and even like anti-Islam, because of the fact that Islam is the water that they've been swimming in for 500 years, for as much as they are like anti-Muslim and they don't identify as Muslim, and I, I respect that, but they still view 
the world of meaning. They still view religion as a topic and even things like manners and morals and uh, virtue and priorities. They still view it through a very Islamic lens and they don't know that. What that's shown me about people in the West or in America is that for as much as my atheist friends are like anti-religion and they're like, no, I want nothing to do with that, and they don't identify with Christianity, really what they're rejecting is the mostly is the form of Christianity that they're aware of. People don't know much about Islam. Like even Muslims don't know much about Islam. Most of, of people, when they hear these phrases, when they talk about religion, whether they've realized it or not in the West, they're really coming, they think about them first and foremost through a Christian lens. And when we say Christian, I mean specifically the type of Christianity that they know because they don't know the Eastern Orthodox tradition. They don't know Ethiopian Christianity. They don't really even know, most of us don't even really know much about what is really there in the Christian tradition. I mean, most people have never read St. Thomas Aquinas. Most people don't know about the liberation theology movement. Most people don't know the just diversity of Christian thought. So I say all that to say that when we talk about these topics, please try to be open to the fact and be aware of the fact that our introduction to this language is coloring our perception of it and our interaction with these ideas in ways that aren't necessarily true. And I would say that all of us, as much as possible, if we can try to bypass the biases that we have, the, the loaded relationship that we have with these topics and with these concepts, if we can try as much as possible to be open, we'll all be really well served by doing so. So the creator says to all of humanity, am I not your Lord? In that time when we're all witnessing and we're all together and we're all on one accord and we're all on one page and collectively the human family says, we bear witness, we're witnesses. And the term Lord in, in Arabic means that we're being sustained, that we're being created, that we're being related to on our most intimate and personal levels, on every level. We're being evolved, we're being trained, we're being taught. You know, all of us, when we say I'm a work in progress, this is a journey that I'm on, the reality that the Muslims have or the, the belief, the feeling that the Muslims have is that the unseen one universal originator and source of it all is actually relating to us and is growing us and is along with us in that process and is loving us and is nurturing us and is caring for us and is forgiving us. And that one source knows our journey better than we know it. And so is, it's a very loving relationship. One of the things that I've been taught is that, you know, and, and there are also a variety of ways that Muslims understand Islam. It's not a monolith. The core fundamentals are the same across the Muslim world. But there are, there's a variety of expressions and understandings about things. And it's a religion that really respects that. The traditional Muslims knew that there are going to be these three areas, these kind of three spheres of religion that one of them is going to be theology. What do the Muslims believe? What's our creed? 
And within that, there are, there's a foundation, and then there's also room for differences of, of perception, differences of opinion, differences of belief. And that those differences can be valid as long as we agree on the fundamentals. So there's a world of belief. What do we believe about the nature of reality? And everybody, whether you're religious or not, I would argue that everybody has a belief system. Uh, unless you're just a straight-up materialist, narcissist, uh, uh, materialist uh, nihilist, unless you believe that like all there is is what we can objectively observe with our senses. So there are people that say like, well, I don't, I don't believe, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a religion. I have, I, I'm, I ba- I'm based what I do on science. Even that understanding that there's like a dichotomy or there's a war between science and faith, that's not from Islam. I'm sorry. That's that that might be a Christian, a Western Christian framework in looking at things, because the Muslims were deep believers, and at the height or the golden age of Islam, the Muslims made a lot of the of the scientific advancements that the world uses now in science, in mathematics, in astronomy, in physics, in biology, in geology. You know, so many of the sciences, like we use the word algorithm all the time, and I hate that word actually, because like we talk about it so much with like social media, the algorithm does this, the algorithm does that, as though it's its own, has its own personality, right? But the word algorithm is an Arabic word. Most of the stars have Arabic names, the word algebra, and so, so much of math and science was really developed and offered to the world because the Muslims believe that the world is the expression of the creator. And so we love it and we love science and we love mathematics. Our, uh, our wise people warned us about the development of technology to always be connected to why are we doing these things, that technology deals with how and what. But we have to stay focused on why and are these things good to do. But, you know, this idea that science and and religion are at war, that's not something that we identify with as Muslims. And so this idea that people have that like, I'm just about science. I don't have a belief. Other people have beliefs and I don't. I would ask us to sit with that for a little bit and really think about that because most of us are not nihilist materialists. Most of us believe that there is a world of meaning. And in that world of meaning, there are virtues and there are vices. There are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And those things are in varying degrees. So if you believe that, you know, just because I can have my way with somebody, just because I can enforce my will on somebody, that that's not necessarily the right thing to do. You know what I'm saying? That like it would be better to feed a baby than it would be to punch a baby. <laughs> That's a very extreme example. But like if there is such a thing as a world of meaning, you know, if beauty is real, if love is real, and these aren't just objective things that we just create, if there is such a thing as right and wrong, and those things are universal and they're not just constructed by us, then you have a belief system. And everybody's belief system comes with a practice 
like for a person to be a person of integrity, if you believe in that there's such a thing as integrity, that like what I believe should show up in my practice, that I should that I should walk my talk, that I should be a person that does the things that I believe are good and doesn't do the things that I believe are harmful, then that's a belief system that also has a practice. And most of us also would like for our belief system, the things that we think are beautiful and healing and healthy and good and nurturing and fair and just and loving, we want those things to be normalized. We want those things to be common. We want those things to be popular. We want for people to have access to those. So I would say that, you know, I know it's, it's, it's a really strange thing in a postmodernist world to say like, oh, you have a religion? Like, what's up with that? You know what I'm saying? It's strange. And I believe me, like I said, I feel you. I get it. And if I hadn't had the experiences that I've had, I would probably be in that camp as well. So Islam has a system of belief, a, a theology. And within that theology, there are things that are foundational that we all believe in. And there's a lot of things that we you know, ways that we, there are variations. And traditionalist Muslims know that those variations were, were respected. And then a second sphere of the religion of Islam is the world of practice. So we could say that this, these things are like the head, the hands, and the heart. So in the head, we have theology. The hands, we have a symbol, a symbol for practice. So there is a sharia in Islam. And the sharia basically is a code that categorizes everything a human being could do in one of five major categories. So it basically says that there are some things that are so good and so virtuous that these are actually necessary for a person to be a good person. There's obligations. There's things that you have to do. They're so good and they're so important that they're obligations and a person has to do them. So those things would be called farad or wajib or obligations. Then there are some things that are good actions, but because the creator understands that we're weak, and that we struggle with, with ourselves, with the human condition, that they're not obligations, but they just make a person more beautiful and more virtuous and more loving, that, that these are things that are good to do, but they're not requirements. And so there's no fault in a person when they don't do them. It's just that when we do them, it's better for us. Then there's a third category of things, and there are five categories, major categories. The third category are things that are morally neutral. So like if we talk on a phone, if we eat with a fork, if we you know, wear this color instead of that color, those things are morally neutral. Now, a, a thing that's morally neutral can become a virtuous thing by flipping the intention. You know, and it can also become a harmful thing if it's done with the wrong intention. But some things are seen as morally neutral. Then there are things that are whack, that are like distasteful, um, they're offensive. There are things on the, on the spectrum of things that are negatives. There are things that are vices that are whack. And it's just like, and those things in, in Islam are called makruh. And it means that they're disliked, they're detested, they're offensive, but they're not forbidden. Again, because of the fact that we're struggling with the human condition, the creator knows us, our teachers know us, our communities know us. All of us are going to do things that are whack. And it's like, I'm not going to hold you. I'm not going to fault you for that because we just have to understand that's part of being a person. And then there's a fifth category that Muslims hear a lot. And even anybody that knows Muslims has heard the word haram, which means that there are some things that are so harmful, they're so, they're so 
wrong. They're such big vices. They're so dangerous that these things are actually forbidden. And so these are the things that would be called by other people sins. And like, if you're not a religious person, you'd be like, there we go with this mess again. But think about yourself and think about, are there some things that are so wrong that you would unequivocally say, I'm sorry, I'm judging you if you do that. Is murder wrong? You know what I'm saying? And should there be a consequence for it? Is rape wrong and there should be a consequence for it? Is molesting children wrong and there should be a consequence for it? Are there some things that are like, yo, I'm sorry, I can't rock with you. Yes, you're still human. You know what I'm saying? I might not want to kill you for it, but you know, we got different opinions about how those things should be. But it's like, I cannot go there with you on that, man. That's That's just universally the wrong thing to do. Okay, well, those are things that in the religious system would be called sins. And most people have them. Again, there are people that are just straight up nihilist materialists and that would say, no, I don't have a belief system. But even with those people, I'd be like, yo, you're such in the minority in like in the human family that I would even say, I'm sorry, yo, that's a that's a belief system too. To say nothing means anything is a major, like that's a pretty... That's a pretty radical statement to make. Nothing means anything. Might makes right. If I can do it, I should be allowed to do it. Nobody can judge me. F everybody. If, if I have the power to do something, I should be able to do it. Most people are going to say, yo, that's extreme and that is a belief system as well. So in the Islamic tradition, we have theology, which we can say head, hands, and heart. You know, there's, there's like a way of just simplifying it and giving a picture. So what do we believe? And beliefs have consequences because if we're a person of integrity, those beliefs are going to show up in the things that we do and in the things that we would encourage others to do and the things that we don't do. But then there's a third category or a third kind of sphere or of learning and development, which is about the heart, the inner dimension of the human being. And so we do have the sharia. And the sharia, what it does is it categorizes everything a person can do and say and look at and think about and engage. Anything that we can actively engage in, it's going to categorize those in one of those five categories. It's also understood that every single living human being, with the exception of the prophets, every single human being, including our religious masters, including our teachers, including the most righteous religious people, that everybody has a relationship with haram. Everybody has a relationship with sin. So when we say sin, we don't mean, and that's why it's difficult to use this language because we don't mean, that, like we don't see it as like there's righteous people and then there's sinners. Like the most righteous people, the most religious people just live with the reality that just like our bodies, like we eat food and we want to eat good food, but just like we understand that the food we eat, some of it is going to be nutrition that's going to feed us and some of it is going to get turned into gas that we're just going to have to, you know, we're going to pass gas, like we're going to fart. And it's not like you're a bad person for farting. You're a bad person for farting in an elevator. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that's why we have privacy. You're a bad person for, for like, you know, if you can help, like not like taking a dump on the street, <laughs> like <laughs> you'd be messed up to take a dump in the kitchen. You know what I'm saying? Or in the living room. That's why we got a bathroom for that. You know what I'm saying? That's why there's the, 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 the lavatory, the commode, the WC. <laughs> that's why we got places to do that. 
You know what I mean? And then you got places for getting clean. You, you know, it's a beautiful thing actually in the Islamic tradition, man, that we wash before we pray. And we don't wash up because it's like, you dirty, dirty boy. But like, it's understood that like, it, it, for Muslims, our natural functions get us in a situation where we need to be clean. And one of the things that people know about Islam is it's a very clean religion. Um, if you watch Mo Amr, my buddy, I love that guy so much. Mo Amr is one of my dear friends, a comedian, opened for Dave Chappelle for years and still does sometimes. But he's got his own specials on Netflix, two of them. One is called Vagabond. He talks about being a Palestinian immigrant. The other one is called Muhammad in Texas because he, he comes from Palestine, lived uh, in a few places and lived in Kuwait. And then he, he's lived his life in Texas. And he's just a homie, man. I love that dude so much. But he talks about, he's like, man, Muslims are looking at the West like, how come nobody has bidets? Because when a Muslim uses the bathroom, like we have to wash it off of ourselves with water, whether we're doing num you know, number one or number two. We have to wash it. So like if you go to your Muslim friend's house, they'll have a flower pot in the, in the bathroom or a bidet or some sort of like squirt bottle for water because we have to physically, like we can't have any stuff on us while we're praying. And then we go and wash our body. We wash, when we do that, in order to pray, we have to wash our hands and our face and our nose and our mouth and our ears and our head, our hands up to the shoulders, and we, we wash our feet. And part of what this does for us is, first of all, it's very intimate with the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, because he washed himself like that. And so we're washing our bodies the way that we washed our bodies. But what it means is that part of being a human being is that you're going to get messy. Like, you know, the, all the beautiful food we eat, it also turns to, to waste that we have to pass as part of being a person. And also part of being a human being is that we're going to say things that are hurtful. Other people's honor and dignity is sacred. And to talk about them in ways that they wouldn't want to be talked about is a, is a major violation. And we all do it. You know what I'm saying? Looking at people when they're in their worst moments. You know what I'm saying? We, like all these current events, so much of these current events are about just looking at people in their worst moments and broadcasting it and talking about it. But like what's understood is that everybody has those moments. That's part of being a human being and that's part of what I'm going to get to when we talk about the idea of sin or a violation or haram like there's there that's part of being human and that's part of what this system this wisdom tradition this religion is about is trying to pr help us uh build upon the best of who we are you know what I'm saying? And so when religious people are like, yo, I don't want to hear certain things. I don't want to see certain things. It's not because we think we're better. It's because like, yo, I'm battling my own like demons and my own propensity to do and say and look at the wrong things and to violate the creator and to violate the beauty of life and to violate other people and their beauty and their sanctity. You know, the, the idea that there's haram, the idea that there's sin, we don't look at it like we're the holy ones and the other people are the sinners. Our, we know that our saints sin. We know that. It's a fact of life. It's not, you know, and they might be private, but it's not a secret. You know what I'm saying? This is a way of engaging a human being. So that brings us into this third sphere, which is the, the sphere of the heart, the inner dimension of the human being. And that, you know, when people say like, well, you can, you can legislate, you can make laws, but you can't legislate the heart. 
what a wisdom tradition does, what a spiritual tradition does, what a faith practice does, is it gives you actual ways to heal the heart and to make it better. And that's what we really want. You know, that, that there, first of all, to understand what is the design of a human being? What is a human being on the inside? And what this tradition gives us is a framework that sees it like this. The non-physical part of a human being is that we are a soul. The soul is the breath of God, ruh, the breath of God that animates every human being. You know what I'm saying? When a person dies, that's not there anymore. And like we're, we're honoring the shell that they lived in. This is the home where they lived. You know what I'm saying? This is where their, their soul lived. And that matters. It's not that the body doesn't matter. The body does matter. And so we're not the spiritual bypassing type of thing. We're like, we don't care about life and we don't care about our bodies and we don't care about... That's actually a, an, an augmented practice or understanding of the spiritual tradition. We do live in our bodies. You know, and so anything also when people say I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, it's like, okay, but you live in a body and you're going to do things and we need guidance for what are the right things to do and what are the, what, what are the wrong things to do. You know what I'm saying? We need to understand also that those things have varying degrees of good and bad, but you know, within the human being, we are a soul and every single human being is a soul. Even the people that oppose us, even the people, we might have to meet them on the battlefield. Muslims, we're not pacifists in every case. We prefer to be passive, but there are times where we are obligated to put our hands on people and to take the sword out with people and to fight people. There are certain people that you got to put your hands on them. That's part of our religion. And there's always the J word, jihad. And we could talk about that if you want to. I'm not shy about that at all. I feel great about the reality of jihad. Jihad is not killing innocent people. Jihad is not terrorism. That that is not jihad. And we hate that because it's a false version of something that's extremely beautiful and extremely chivalrous and virtuous. They said that the early companions of the Prophet Muhammad were warrior poets. These are beautiful people that love. And then also, when we're on the battlefield, there's a way to do battle that's uh, virtuous and that's, that's, that's dignified and meaningful. And I have, I'm proud of it. They, they bother me at the airport, so I don't, I don't say it at the airport, but like, yo... This is another thing about this tradition that's really beautiful. And even the people that we oppose, they are a soul. And so we have to engage them like that. The people that we dislike the most in this life, that's a human being with a soul and they're being animated by the breath of God and the creator of, of it all that we say we love and that we say we serve and that we say we submit to saw fit to will this person into existence. And so that's the way I have to interact with them. Qad karamna bani Adam, Allah says in the Quran. Certainly, qad means like with utmost certainty, never forget this. Karamna bani Adam. We've given nobility to the children of Adam. Every single human being has a right to their nobility, even if we dislike them the most. The worst person in the world. They still have a basic humanity that they're being animated by the breath of God. So a human being is a soul. A human being also is a heart, qalb, the heart. The heart is close to the soul and related to the soul. And all these are integrated. You know, it's not like we're sections, but these are different ways to understand the inner workings of a human being, according to our teachers. So uh, uh, the heart, that's our thermometer for our state. Like that's where we're at right now. 
A person's soul is their eternal reality, but a person's heart is like, where am I at? And this is the way to tell, like, how's it going? And a lot of times the Muslims will say, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, introduced this beautiful phrase where we say, What's your state? What's your state? Your hell? What's, what's the state that you're in? And we know that by, by saying, we're really saying, how's your heart? What's your heart experiencing right now? And when we meditate, when people meditate, this is one of the things that they're getting in touch with. What do I feel? You know, and the heart is the thermometer for where we're at in our spiritual practice. The heart is where I look look at like, is it easy to be patient with people that are being corny to me and being whack to me and being offensive to me? Is it easy for me to be patient with them? Or is it easier for me to just lose my cool? Because if it's easy to be patient, then that's a good sign of where my heart's at. And that's a good sign of where I'm really at. Is it easy to forgive people? Because that's a sign of a healthy heart a sound heart. And when we give that greeting, assalamu alaikum, you know, what we're taught about the day of judgment is like what Allah says, what God says in the Quran, prepare yourself for a day where nothing can help you. <laughs> Nothing's going to help you more than having a sound heart. And I'm, I'm crying because it's hard. It's hella hard, man. And like, we just all had this, this, like this quarantine thing where it's like, man, I, I, we walk through life thinking you're a good person with good intentions. I realized in this time, I had all these expectations for people that they didn't even know about. And I have genuine beef with, or, or like real stress or strain with people. And like, I had all these expectations of them that I didn't even know I had. And so there's like these, these stories I tell myself, and this is, you know, part of what you do in therapy is like, like examine your narratives and your patterns and like the things you, that's part of what therapists do is they ask you questions from angles that we've never thought of before. You know, I talk about my man, Mally on this tour and Mally's always like, stop blaming me for how much you're talking. You're supposed to be saving your voice. But yo, it's like Mally asked me questions that I never thought about. You know, he, he asked me questions I'm gonna share something kind of personal right now, but uh, you know, I was, I, he knows my wife. You know what I'm saying? And they like Mally's part of our family. Like we love him. I'm gonna start crying because of how much I love Mally. But like, I was talking to him about this like difficulty that I have with my wife, and he just asked, "Do you think she has space?" And he didn't even finish the question. And the second he said that, I'm like, "No, I don't give her that space," or I haven't been intentional about it. So it's like, man, I'm walking through my life with all this stuff. And like, we got to have a sound heart. We got to get our heart right. You know, my teacher, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, he's the one that said, use your heart for what your hearts are for. And like, man, we have to get right with each other, you know, and trying to do this on our own. It's like, how the hell am I supposed to do this on my own? That's why we say we're co-travelers. We've also got a heart. And like, can the heart forgive? Can the heart be patient? Can the heart be loving? Can the heart be open even though we've been hurt? And none of this is a bypass. None of this is a bypass. The education of the heart is about like, yes, yes, your oppression is real. Yes, the people that molested you and lied to you and beat you and abused you and stole from you and degraded you and dehumanized you. Yeah, that's all real. But it's like, you're, I'm the one that got to live with my heart. And, and like, I, I'm going back to the creator of it all with this heart and I want it to be sound.
And like, how, how do we get there? And you can front on religion all you want. And like, like I said, I feel you because like people use religion to hurt other people. People use music to hurt other people. People use love to hurt other people. People use friendship. They use everything good. Most, good, most harm is done in the name of good. So like, yeah, I, f- I feel you, bro. Like, but yo, I need some, I, like I deserve to have guidance in this stuff. We're a soul and we're a heart. That's part of who we are. And so we have to understand we deal with every person. There's a soul in there. We also have to understand that everybody's got a heart and the hearts hurt and the hearts turn back and forth and the hearts are strong sometimes and they're weak at other times. You know what I'm saying? And people's hearts are hurting, you know? So like when we deal with people, it's like we have to understand like, yo, yo, they're hurting. Their hearts are starving. Their hearts are famished. Like where, where in this modern society do we get the food for the heart it's supposed to be community and we don't have community communities are broken and more and more communities are getting broken more and more we're supposed to have families and families are broken that's how hearts get nourished families are broken you know what I'm saying? People don't talk to each other. People don't love each other. People don't pour into each other. People don't hold each other. People don't do life together. And then, you know, we're supposed to have art. Art does that too. You know, but art is being controlled by people that just want to make money. And so it's like, man, there's more money in escaping than there is in examining. There's more money in escaping meaning than there is in examining meaning. And so, man, art is fucked up too. You know, I've had religious people in my life that have hurt me and that have hurt other people. And like one of them is well known. So if I tell the story, I I would be violating him. You know what I mean? But like, I, I know, like, I know, I know, I know, I know. And I'm a social justice person. I'm an outspoken person. I'm an opinionated person. I'm an organizer. I'm an activist. I've spoken truth to power. I've called. I've done all of that, yo. But it's like, man, I need to be reminded that when I'm dealing with a person, I'm dealing with a soul and I'm dealing with a heart. All the stuff that I see in the world that I would like to do something about, that person is, is suffering from all that stuff too. So we're a soul and a heart. We're also an intellect. It's part of who we are. A human being is an intellect. And the intellect needs framework for stuff. This is where we get ideology. This is where we get theology. This is where we get like every person needs to have a framework for how they understand things. And so the fact that a person's going to have a different ideology from me is, is going to just be a reality. Hold on. I'm going to blow my nose. Hold on. Okay, I'm back. And I'm going to probably cry some more, but <laughs> but I just, I just wanted to collect myself for a second. A human being is an intellect and a human being is going to have ideology and they're going to have a framework for how their mind, like the mind needs those things in order to interface with the, with the world and with the experience that we're all having. So there are going to be people that have different ideologies. And this is one of the things that in our time, we rarely acknowledge that a person is a soul. We rarely acknowledge a person's heart. And what this time is about is a, is a lot of reduction. 
a lot of what modernity and post-modernity has done is just reduce things. It's rejected the things that came before. Pre-modern people had a lot more in common than modern people have with them. And what I mean by that is that pre-modern people had beliefs that they were clear about. They had tribes, they had culture, they had a relationship with nature that wasn't just observing it to figure out what the molecules do and how to manipulate it to do what they want more quickly. But like the people that lived in America, man, they knew not only where the mountains were and how high they were and they could measure it all and all those things and how to map it and how to grow things on it and how to deal with the animals and what to do about the weather patterns. They knew all of that, but they also had a sense of why those things were happening. And they also related to them on a spiritual level. You know, people always say like, yo, you moved to Turkey, there's so much history there. Fam, there's history here too. It's just that we've denied it, like we've covered it. We've tried to kill those people and we tried to destroy their memory. But they knew what these mountains meant. You know what I'm saying? Like I visit the Grand Canyon and we just drove all through the Southwest. And it's like, man, it's very beautiful and it's also heartbreaking for me because the people that lived, they have relationships. Here I go again. But there are people that had relationships with these places. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, somebody meets your grandmother or somebody meets your children or something. And like they see them, but like, yo, you've known them for years and they've known you for years. You know what I'm saying? There are people that have known these mountains and these sky and this sky and like these animals and these plants. There are people that have known these these for we don't know how long. And it's just like, man, get out of here. We're done with you. We're going to try to kill you. We're going to try to, we're going we're gonna to put you in these little reservations. And now we can't figure out what's going on with nature. And we can't figure out ourselves. And, the, and we've, all these things that we've done are killing us. And it's like, yeah, but they go fast. All right, word. So the pre-modern world, pre-modern people, they had wisdom and they knew things that we don't know. And now this belief that like modern people are the best people that have ever come along. And then they threw away all of the old ways of doing things. And then they made a mess of it all again. And so now we have postmodernism, which says like, well, now we're going to correct all the things that the modernists did. But we never think to like, what did the people before us know? So a human being is a heart. A human being is a soul, a heart, and an intellect. And we've reduced, this is what I mean when I'm talking about modernism and postmodernism, that like we have reduced these things. Uh, we've reduced the, the soul. We re- almost never talk about the soul and we rarely talk about the heart. You talk to people even that are into self-help and self-improvement, they're just talking about their brain. And they, they mean their intellect and their mind. And it's like, yes, you are an intellect. That's what you are. We all are that. But we're more than that. We're hearts. What about the heart? What about the soul? You know, psychology initially meant the science of the soul. Psyche is the soul. It's not the mind. It's not the brain. But we've reduced all these things and we've forgotten all these things. So we reduce guidance to advice. We reduce truth to facts. You know, we reduce all of these things to something that we think can be controlled physically. And this is all the work of dominators. This is all the work of colonialists. They reduce everything to the physical world because that's the, that's the domain of dominators. That's the part that they are learning. That's the part they're trying to master. And so 
part of culture and part of insisting upon connection and culture and the spirituality, the heart, the soul. These are, are really actual radical oppositions uh, and, and reframing and relearning, you know, of original ways of being. So I love the idea of unlearning, of unlearning but what about relearning? I'm sorry for the tangents. A human being is an, uh, a soul. A human being is a heart. And a human being is an intellect. And we have to just understand that, that everyone we're dealing with, they're going to have different framings of things. A human being needs those things. A person needs to have those. And we're going to differ. And then also a human being is an ego. And the ego is the worst part of who we are. The ego is obsessed with its own individuality. It's obsessed with its separation. Like I'm different and distinct from everyone else. And I'm very important just because I'm me. And it has nothing to do with any type of vice or virtue or health or healing or goodness or anything. The ego just demands what it wants. Uh, in the Islamic tradition, the ego is called the nafs. But some people talk about the nafs when they just mean the, the non-physical, the inner reality of the person. So sometimes the soul is called the nafs. Sometimes these terms are used interchangeably. But the, the ego is a reality inside of every person. We have to know it about ourselves. Uh, we have to know that the ego is always just demanding what it wants. The ego is obsessed with itself. It's obsessed with identity. It's really connected to the intellect. Our ideology has to be right. Our opinions have to be right all the time. And there are certain things that are necessary you know, it's, it's, it's important to have a healthy sense of self. It's important to have a healthy sense of identity because identity was given to us by the creator, the source of it all. In the Quran, Allah says, we made you into tribes and nations, but we did that so that you could know each other. And the commentators add not that the, so that you could oppose each other, but that there would be this community within the human family that we would understand that we have had different cultures, different experiences, different languages. And ideally what those things should do is inform one another. Allah also says like, you know, had it not been that we use some people to check the power of other people, there would be nothing but corruption. Sometimes you get need, you need to get knocked off your high horse. Sometimes you need to take a L. Sometimes you need to like look in the mirror and like, yo, man, I got a man. My mouth just wrote a check. My behind couldn't cash. I, I, I got to watch how I talk to people. That's part of the human condition because of, or in reality, because of the human condition that we all have an ego. We need to know that about ourselves. And it's one of the reasons why what I would offer to my fam that say, like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, and I don't believe in organized religion. These are catchphrases, you know what I'm saying, that people that feel like they're independent thinkers, they're like, yo, I don't, I'm not in a group think. I'm not in a framework. I'm assessing all of this for myself and I'm charting my own course. I feel you. I really respect that. It, it, were it not for the, the experience I've had with Islam, that's what I would probably be doing. But what I would just offer as a reflection is like what we get as communication from ourselves, some of it is coming from the ego and some of it is coming from the soul. Some of it's coming from the heart. You know, the, what we learn in the Islamic tradition is that, in the spiritual tradition that some people call tasawwuf or Sufism, is like the inclinations that occur to our hearts come from three different areas. Some of them come from 
the beautiful world of divine reality. Some of them are going to come from darkness and evil. Like It's understood that every human being has inclinations that are just messed up. That everybody has things that occur to them that are like, yo, why did I just think that right now? And, and like, why do I have this urge to just do something bad? That's part of who we are. Everybody's dealing with that. But some of these things actually come from our own ego. And the ego, one of the things about it is that it poses as the soul. The ego and evil in general, it doesn't announce itself. It doesn't say like, yeah, I'm evil, I'm the devil, I'm your ego, I'm your lower self. I'm your freaking narcissist, I'm the inner like narcissist, uh, horrible person that's just here to have my way with you and everyone around you and just mess everything up and destroy everything. It doesn't do that. Because there's a soul in there that would be like, nah, I'm not doing that. It, it, it poses in the form of self-help, of self-care. It comes in the cloak of and speaking the language of good. If you don't know that about yourself, you're in danger, in my opinion. We have to know that like, a lot of times the, the desires that we have are false desires. And it's possible to create whole frameworks around something that's not healthy. It's possible to create an identity and a framework around something that's not natural, that's not good, that's not beneficial. And it's going to be really difficult for us to know that. So like the ego needs to submit. And a lot of times the ego needs to be challenged. And a lot of times the ego needs to be broken. Most of the self-help talk, like when you, when you hear people talk about being motivated and being a hustler and get, get up and get it, you know, motivational speakers and all that stuff, what they're essentially telling us is like, yo, the things that you want are probably not going to be the things that are in the black wisdom tradition. What's good to you is not always good for you. Like our ego is going to say everything from like, man, don't get up and work out. Don't eat a salad. Like go on and do the thing that you want. And those things are going to feel good when you're doing them. But we destroy ourselves with things that feel good. That's part of the reality. We have to know that about being a person, about being a human being. And in this particular framework, it's also important because for my friends that say like I'm spiritual and I'm not religious... The question I would ask is, how am I going to know which parts of these things are coming from my ego in disguise of the spiritual path? And I think it's important to have also elders and teachers that are there with us to help us understand that. Like, yo, you think you're doing something good. Maybe most of your intention is good. It's possible to even understand that there's like very subtle, like variations and nuances of intention. That like to be sincere in Islamic tradition, Siddiq, we want to be Sadiq. We want Ikhlas, which means exclusivity of intention. That's what sincerity is. I am here only with the intention of doing what's right for the sake of doing what's right. We want to be motivated by that. Everybody agrees that that's beautiful. But the human condition is such that usually what we have is some varying degree. Then there are some people that are just straight up hypocrites. You know what I mean? And in, in Islam, a hypocrite is worse than somebody that denies the existence of the world of meaning at all. You know, we talk about believers and disbelievers and people are like, well, I'm an atheist, so I'm a disbeliever. Most of my atheist friends, when they say I don't believe in God, they mean they don't believe in the conception of God that they were taught. So when we say a disbeliever, what, I'm, what the Muslims mean, kufr, the opposite of kufr is 
Shukr, gratitude. Like, are you a person of gratitude? Like, are you grateful for your life? Are you grateful for the beautiful things in the world? Like, do you think it's a virtue to be a grateful person? And are you only grateful to other people? Or are you, are you grateful to what some people might call the universe? Because people say the universe when they don't want to say God. They say that because the concept of God is like whatever you've been given, the framework. Maybe God is a white man on a throne condemning and zapping people and blessing some other people arbitrarily based on this arbitrary set of rules. And like, yeah, if that's what you don't believe in, I don't, I don't believe in that either. So, like, you know what I mean? But like, are you grateful? And what is gratitude if there's not an object of the gratitude? To whom or what are you grateful? Because I would argue that that is the divine. That's the source of the beauty and of the reality. And that's what we're talking about. When we say Allah, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a person. We're not talking about an idol. We're not talking about a God that somebody else can use against you. We're not talking about something that somebody in power owns and you don't. We're not talking about something that some group of people have a special access to. The human being by right knows that there's a source that brought us into existence. And everyone has equal access and everyone knows that reality by right and relates to it without anyone else needing to be part of that. So we either are in gratitude or we deny. I don't have to be grateful to anybody. It's all arbitrary or I deserve it or I just made it happen by myself. I'm not grateful. And so when we talk about the universe, the question I would have would be, do you mean the planets and the stars and the physical molecules of the universe? Or are you talking about something out there that is causing the physical world? Because I would say that that's what I mean when I say Allah, the non-physical, non-unlimited, infinite. That's what I'm talking about when I say Allah. So it, it might be that you actually believe in Allah. And it might be when you say the universe and I say Allah that we're talking about the same reality. What I would hold is that when all human beings are talking about the world of meaning, interacting with the world of meaning, having a relationship with the world of meaning, when I say la ilaha illallah, when I say bismillah, I'm saying in the name of that source of it all. That's what I'm talking about. And so... Uh, a hypocrite in the Islamic tradition, someone who says, yeah, I believe and I'm trying to do good. And I'm trying, a person who actively knows that they don't believe in that is worse than somebody who doesn't have that belief to begin with. And so we say all that to say, what we want is a sincere intention. And there are some people that are just straight up hypocrites. I'm saying one thing and I really mean something different. But for most of us, we have varying degrees of compromised intentions. So we have an intention, a good intention. Maybe that's the strongest one. But what we oftentimes don't see in ourselves and need a way to measure and even people to help us determine, to help us see where are the compromises in my intention. In Islam, there's this reality called riyah, which means just being impressed with ourself and our own spiritual practice. Like, yo, all of the things, I mentioned this last week in the episode, all the things that are whack about religious people are in the Quran. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. I love that so much. And also when I read them, I'm like, that's like, that's me, man. I'm doing that. Riyadh means that we're doing good things. 
um, but we're impressed with ourselves and, and we become self-righteous. It's a very slippery slope and fine line between righteous and self-righteous. And people love righteous people. But like when you meet like a really like very sincere religious person, it's like they're beautiful to everybody. Somebody's people have grandmas like that. But it's a very slippery slope between being a really sincere religious person and being a self-righteous. And like that's so ugly. Everybody knows how ugly that is. And I'm sorry, but like that doesn't only exist in religion. Like I saw this meme that's like the first rule of vegan club is tell everybody about, you know what I'm saying? There's vegans that are like super self-righteous vegans. And it's like there's self-righteous social justice people. And there's people like that in business. And there's people like that in self-help. And there's people like that in recovery. And there's people like that in yoga. And there's people like that in meditation. And there's people like that in the church. And whatever your thing is of how you engage in trying to be a better person and trying to make the world a better place, that reality exists when we talk about what is Islam and why does it speak to me so much, that's really what we're talking about. This is what Islam offers is theology. What do we believe about the nature of existence? And then there's practice, the sharia. There's a, there's a spectrum of behavior, of things that I can do, things that I can say, and some things would be better than others, and understanding where those things are so that I have a harder time justifying my BS. There's some things in the Sharia that I'm just, I just have to acknowledge. And one of the things I'll say about the Sharia that some of our teachers have related to us that's really dope is like the Sharia, the outward practice. So when people talk about I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, or the difference between spirituality and religion, usually what people are saying is that spirituality is the world of the heart. The heart is the garden. Like, look at the heart as a garden. So what God said, what Allah says in the Quran, prepare yourself for a day when nothing will suffice but a sound heart. That's what we're really going for. The garden needs a fence. The fence guards the garden. Because if a garden doesn't have a fence, that not, like not only is there the human condition that will ruin it from within, but also the human being will ruin themselves with the things that we allow ourselves to do. I've known people that have done all sorts of crimes, sins, uh, harm, however you want to frame it. I've got dear friends that because of circumstances in their life, they've killed people. I've got a lot of friends like that. You know, and I don't think they're worse than somebody who has destroyed somebody's reputation. To kill one person is like you've killed all of humanity, and to save a life is like what save one life is like you've saved all of humanity. And oppressing people is worse than killing them. And backbiting is almost like you're eating the dead flesh of a human being. It's disgusting. It's horrible. Like to talk about people and destroy their reputations, and we've all taken part in that. You know what I'm saying? There, there's not one of us that have not spoken an ill word of another person. If we do things that are harmful and destructive to others, we really destroy ourselves. We hurt ourselves when we do these things. We harm our hearts when we do the wrong things. When we lie to people, we harm our hearts. When we deceive people, when we you know, wrong other people, when we cheat other people, when we're jealous, we're harming ourselves. When we hold people in contempt, we're harming ourselves. When we forgive people, we're liberating ourselves. When we love people, when we, hold, when we have good opinions of people, we're healing ourselves by doing that. It's universal. Like we, we, we 
are beautifying ourselves when we're good to others on all levels. When we give to people, we, we, we open up the, the beauty in our own selves. It's just the reality. So when people talk about being spiritual and being religious, the, the religion or the rules or the code or the sharia, that code is the fence that's guarding the garden. But it's really about the garden. It's not about the fence. If you have a garden with no fence, then your garden is going to be destroyed. But also, if you have a fence without a garden, you know, that's these people that are just obsessed, these religious fanatics. And that is a reality. It's a reality for everybody. There are some people that are fanatics. And they're like, no, you have to do this. Otherwise, you're, you're wrong. The balance between those things is the walk and it's the journey. So there's so much that I could say, you know, about this tradition. I would love to talk, and, 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 you know, inshallah, I think I'm just going to have to do more of these. I know some people will like them. Some people just don't want to hear anything about religion, and I, I get that. I'm going to have to do more of these because we're already, you know, an hour and a half in or something. And if I start down these roads, this is going to be way too much to listen to all at once. But one of the main questions that has to be answered is, okay, if there is a creator, if there's a God, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? And yo, that's a good question. And religious people have to be able to answer that. Everybody, every framework, every solution has questions that, yo, you got to deal with this, man. And it's one of the mysteries that is one of the central things in the Quran. In the story of the creation of the human being, Allah says, I'm going to create in the world a vicegerent. And so my man, Usman the Taylor, vicegerent. I'm going to create in the world a khalifa. And the khalifa is the vicegerent. The khalifa is like a representative of God that's got all this stuff going on and that has the ability to decide what they're going to do. Whereas like nature has much more of a harmony and the human condition means there's going to be disharmony. And so... The angelic beings, and again, you say angels, people are thinking, people bring things to mind that we don't mean. We're not talking about a naked baby with wings. <laughs> like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about beings of light. There are beings of light that have a role in, in creation. And some people don't believe in them, and that's fine. <laughs> but uh, the angels ask the creator, you're going to create something that has disharmony and that is the ability to chart its own course. Aren't they going to do horrible things? And the creator says, I know what you don't know. And that's one of the greatest mysteries of life. And it's one of the reasons that we examine these things together is, you know, if there's a creator and that creator is, why did the creator create a being that can do horrible things? And one of our teachers told, was reflecting on this, and he said, when the angels ask that question, they're asking about the slave trade. They're asking about sex trafficking. They're asking about sexual violence and molestation and oppression. And they're asking about all of the horrible things that happen in, in life. That's what they're asking about. It's a valid question. And so when people ask that question of religious people, it's like, yo, they're asking the questions that the angels ask. That's coming from their better self. That's coming from what we believe, the reality that human beings were in a time of they, when we witnessed only beauty. And so they're like, yo, what's up with all of this? Like that is a real question. It's a necessary question. And maybe another time we'll talk about that. And there's also very specific questions people have about the Sharia or about the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and things like that. And those are all good questions, and I'm not shy about any of it. 
Like, I love this religion, and I know not everything is going to be popular. And, you know, the Prophet Muhammad told us that we're going to be strangers. He said that, you know, Islam came into the world as a stranger, and it's going to return to being strange. And he said, glad tidings to the strangers. I'm cool with being strange, and I'm okay with not that, that these things aren't going to necessarily... Uh, they're not going to sit well with everybody and not everybody's going to understand them. And it's not my business to make you understand. You know what I mean? I believe in that the creator is the guide and the creator is the one that brings us each to the places where we are. And one of the things we're told in the Quran is like, most people aren't going to agree with you. And we see that prophetic kind of thing come up over and over again. The prophets were killed by their people. The prophets were opposed by their people. You know, and the people that are heroes to us now in the time when they were alive, they weren't celebrated. We forget that. You know what I mean? I'm named after Muhammad Ali. I was offered the name Ali. I'm really named after Imam Ali. Allah be well pleased with him and noble his face. You know, the great one who is the, the cousin of the Prophet Muhammad. That's who all, peace be upon him, that's who all of the Ali's in the world are named after. But when that name was offered to me, I took it because of Muhammad Ali. Now it's pretty much universally accepted. Like we all love Muhammad Ali. When he was healthy and was able to do his thing, he was opposed and rejected and did what he thought was right at every phase of the game. And he was never popular. Like I think we forget that. Tangent, tangent alert. When Muhammad Ali was 18 years old, he went and fought in the Olympics. And he was so scared to get on an airplane. He said, can I take a boat to Rome for the Olympics 1960? No, you can't do that. It's going to mess up your training schedule. You got to take a flight. He was so scared that he went to the army surplus store and bought a parachute and wore it on the plane in case he went down. So it's not that he doesn't experience fear. Great people have fear. But courageous people do the right thing in spite of their fear. So he went and he won. He won the gold medal. You know what I'm saying? This is the, the, the memory of World War II is still in people's minds. You know what I'm saying? That's his parents' generation. And he was born during that time. I have a song about this part called Namesake where he won the, the, the Olympics, won the gold medal. Everybody had to recognize America. He comes back to segregated Louisville, Kentucky. And now he's able to eat in the restaurants where they didn't serve black people. And most gold medal winners, that's the greatest achievement that they will ever have in their life, at least publicly. You know, they might have children and say like, this is actually greater than my gold medal. And he wore his gold medal every day. He wore it in the shower. And they, w they went to restaurants and him and his family could go eat where they didn't used to let him eat. So one day he's doing something, he's training, and his mother goes back to one of those restaurants where now they're allowed to eat. And they say, oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Clay, we don't serve colored people here. Muhammad Ali at 18 years old didn't know that he was going to go on to be the greatest of all time. He, he said, if this medal doesn't mean that my people are free, if it just means that I am privileged and advantaged, and like they're, they're going to treat me human. And what is it? That's a privilege to eat in a white person's restaurant. You know what I'm saying? Like, how's that a privilege? But he's saying, if this just means something for me and it doesn't mean something for my people, then I don't want it. And he threw his medal in the Ohio River. Never to be found again. So that's who he was at that age. You know what I'm saying? And, and in Tasawwuf, in Islam, that's called Zuhud, where the world might be in your hand, but it's never in your heart. Virtue will always be. Uh, first and foremost. And he said, if this doesn't mean something for my people, I don't want it. So then he goes on to become the champion. And he's being backed by this group of like really rich people in Louisville, Kentucky, that are financing him and his family having a good life. 
and he becomes a champion. But along the way, he encounters the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. He encounters Malcolm X. He encounters ministers in the nation of Islam. And this would be a good time to say that I'm an Orthodox Sunni traditional Muslim. Um, I'm not a member of the nation of Islam, but I love the nation of Islam. And the theological differences aren't small. They're big, and we know what they are. But I, I love them, and I wouldn't be Muslim if it wasn't for them. And they're part of my family, and they're part of my trajectory. I am Muslim because of Elijah Muhammad. I'm Muslim because of Malcolm X. I'm Muslim because of the five percenters. I'm Muslim partially because of uh, Noble Drew Ali and his community. Because of hip-hop music, those are the people that introduced Islam to me. So theologically, we're not the same, but that's my family, and I love them. He encounters them, and he joins the Nation of Islam. And then he announces it to the world, and, he, and he's gifted the name Muhammad Ali. And the rich people that are providing his life, these rich white uh, you know, Louisville business people, they say, no, nope, we're going to remove our support for you, and your family's going to go back to being broke, and you're going to have to figure it out on your own. And how are you going to train? They're, they're funding his training. They're funding his lifestyle. And they say, if you do this, we're going to remove, we're going to pull our backing from you. And again, he goes with what he believes in. Then Muhammad Ali, you know, the, eventually the Nation of Islam started managing him. And he goes on to be the greatest champion and he's beating everybody, he's undefeated. And then the army comes and they say like, okay, we couldn't get you with making you a special black person. Backing and giving you money, we couldn't buy you like that. So now we're going to bring, we're going to put you in the army. And we're going to draft you. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to war or anything like that, but everybody's going to know that you are the property of the army, of the arms, of the military. And Muhammad Ali says, absolutely not. And so they say, we're, you know, we're going to take your license away. You can't, you know, you can't box. You can't. And this is, he's at the height of his career. He's at his most, his best fighting years. And he says, okay, take it. And they say, okay, we're going to put you in prison. And he says, never mind prison, bring a firing squad. I'm ready to die for what I believe. Bring a firing squad. And so they take away his title and they threaten to put him in prison. You know, and a lot of the members of the Nation of Islam and a lot of like, just really dope-ass white people did the same thing. Then Muhammad Ali gets offered a tour speaking at colleges and colleges will pay you money. You know what I'm saying? Even if the music industry or the entertainment industry or the boxing industry, it's like, okay. And Muhammad Ali was broke other boxers and people were loaning him money and giving him money just to live. Muhammad Ali was really canceled and he was broke. You know what I'm saying? And he was struggling and like he couldn't afford his homes and he couldn't afford to take care of the people that he was used to taking care of. Muhammad Ali built mosques and schools and community centers all over the country and he couldn't afford to do it anymore. And, he, and like he, he literally was like, how am I going to feed my family? Like it got that real for him. And then they offered him a college speaking engagements. So Muhammad Ali went to the speaking engagements and those things will, you know, pay your bills. So he, here's another opportunity. And he goes outside and he's standing outside and there's footage of this and all these white liberal kids that come to see him. And these kids are like, yeah, we're liberal and everything. And those people would go hear Malcolm X and they went and heard him, but they argued with them. And they basically said, you don't have the right to say and do the things you're doing. Those, those white liberal kids argued with them. And most of them, not all of them, but Muhammad Ali, famously, there's footage of this. He says, I'm not going to go over there and fight. If I want to fight and die for my rights, I'll die here fighting you. 
You're my enemy when I want to get a job. You're my enemy when I want to go to school. You're my enemy when I start businesses. Most people don't know that black Americans right out of slavery and all the way up until very recently built really successful business districts. People are just like, well, man, black people, if they just would get it together, you know, everything that others tell black people to do, they've done it all. There's literally nothing that black people haven't done to try to improve their own situation in America. There was thriving black business districts. People are starting to learn about Tulsa, Oklahoma, but they, I mean, they had them all over the place. There was one in St. Paul called Rondo. You know what I'm saying? And some of the, in Tulsa, I mean, they were bombed. Literally, white people bombed them and killed them and burned them down. In some cases, they had entire black cities. You know what I'm saying? And, and black banks and everything, like black people were supplying all of their own needs. And a lot of times the white businesses couldn't compete with them. And they literally bombed them. In, in Rondo and certain other places, they built uh, the highway. When they built the, the interstate, they built it right through those districts so that they could use uh, what they call an eminent domain so that they could uproot those, those places. You know, Muhammad Ali is saying, you're my enemy. You're the one that's, you're my enemy when I want freedom. You're my enemy when I want justice. He said, you're sitting here arguing with me about my religious beliefs and I'm supposed to be an American. And they canceled his dates. They canceled his college speaking dates. And Muhammad Ali wrote it out. So now we call Muhammad Ali a hero. Why? They waited. You know, they didn't assassinate Muhammad Ali. They assassinated Malcolm X. And yes, uh, black people are the ones that pulled the trigger. But trust and believe if you really look into that, local and national government absolutely had a hand in that assassination. They murdered Fred Hampton in his bed while he was sleeping next to his pregnant wife. And I'm in Chicago right now. And his son that, that, that his wife was, was pregnant with, Fred Hampton Jr., is a, is a friend of mine. You know, a lot of these people they killed, they didn't kill Muhammad Ali. What happened with Muhammad Ali? How did he, be, how did he become a hero? They waited until that disease made it so that he couldn't talk. He couldn't talk his, he couldn't speak his truth the way he used to. And they waited until he couldn't fight and dominate people physically anymore. And then once he was outwardly weak and outwardly frail, now he's a hero. But nobody was saying that while he was doing what he was doing. And what did Muhammad Ali, what was his response to having that disease? Mm. He wasn't angry with anybody. He didn't blame anybody else. He wasn't mad at God. He said, this is what I get for saying I'm the greatest and only God is the greatest. <laughs> so this is who I'm named after. <laughs> oh, man. Now he's a hero and you don't have to be Muslim to understand that. You know what I'm saying? I saw Jesse Ventura, you know, crying uh, in an interview. If you look it up, you can check it out. Jesse Ventura is weeping because he's like, man, that's a man. Like, that's a hero. How many times did he reject? You know, and if you believe in that, what I'm saying to my, to my people, it's like, if, if you literally believe in doing what's right instead of getting what you have access to in the material world, that's a belief system. You know, that's a belief. So there, there's so much that I can't, that I don't have time to go into right now. I said all that to say that we understand that prophetic virtue of people who do the right thing and tell the truth, even when it's not popular. And a lot of times we respect them for it later. 
One of the things I will say though is, um, you know, people a lot of times ask if I want to learn more about this, where do I go? Well, the sources for Islam are the Quran. And, you know, people are a lot of times, it's, it's kind of a Western thing where like, if I want to learn about a thing, what's the book about it? I'll go get the book, I'll read the book, and then I'll understand it. That's understandable. Like, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. The Quran is not like the Bible. Uh, the Quran is not like other scriptures. And by that, I mean that, you know, the Bible is very linear. It's a story that begins with creation and it ends with the book of Revelations and the end of time. It's a very linear story. The Quran is not like that. Many of the rules and practices in Islam do not come directly from the Quran. So I would say read the Quran, but understand that it's not the manual for how to be a Muslim. And it's not, it's not even going to necessarily spell out the intricacies of the belief and the practice of Islam. Uh, so if you read it thinking that you're going to be reading the user's manual or, or the, you know what I'm saying? The, the user's guide. You're not, that's not what that is. But I would say, I would say absolutely read it. In terms of the Quran, there are two that I recommend and there are many translations. It's important to know about the Quran that there is one Quran and it's the most well-preserved scripture that there is. Um, that's may, might sound like a biased claim, but it's not. That's an objective reality. That the Quran has absolutely been preserved from the day that it was the, the times that it was revealed. It was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad fourteen hundred years ago, peace be upon him, and it's been preserved uh, perfectly, completely intact from the time that it was revealed. Even Orientalists, even people that study Islam that don't like it, they've always held this. Um, you know, there are some like kind of modern trends where people are playing with semantics and, and they're doing some deceptive stuff to say, no, there are variations. There are variations in the readings of the Quran. And because of that, um, there are some somewhat minor differences, but those di variations in the readings have always been known to the Islamic scholars and in the Muslim world to everybody, and they're universally accepted. So there are some minor variations in the way that the Quran is read, but the Quran itself, it, there is one Quran, and it's been that way ever since the, the time that it was revealed. So, um, and the Quran is in the Arabic language. There's not to say that there's a translation is a tricky thing because there are not perfect ways. There's just no perfect way to translate that initial, that original Arabic into any language. So there are people that'll say like there are translatings of translations of the meanings. And so there are a lot of them that are really popular. There's one in particular that I like, and this is just a personal preference. There's one by M A S. Abdel Halim, uh, the letter M, like Mary, A as in apple, S as in seed, Abdel Halim. It's blue, um, and it'll say a new translation by M-A-S, Abdel Halim. Uh, this is one that was done uh, recently in London. And I just think if you want to pick up the Quran and just read it, it's also available on Audible, like you can get it in audiobook. Um, it's on YouTube. So if you want to just pick up the Quran and read it and see what it says, I think that's a really good option. The, the Quran is also a book to be studied. The second one that I would recommend if people want to dig in a little bit deeper and look into like what do these verses mean or to have some historical context for when things were revealed and things like that. There's a work that was compiled called The Study Quran and it was headed up by a scholar named Said Hussein Nasser. 
that I think is a really amazing tool and resource. And, you know, like all of these things, neither of those are the original Arabic Quran. So different people are going to have different opinions. And, uh, you know, there is a bit of controversy. There was some controversy when the study Quran came out. It came out like only five years ago or something like that. But I really believe that you know, whatever controversy notwithstanding about some of the people that compiled it and some like unique kind of theological uh, opinions that they hold in general for people who don't have context for the Quran, if you really want to study it, if you really want to understand some of the nuance of meaning behind some of these things, that's a tremendous resource. So if you want to just pick up the Quran and read it, I would say M.A.S. Abdel Halim. That's my personal recommendation. And then if you want to dig into it a little bit deeper, the study Quran is available too. And then the second major source for Islamic understanding and guidance and knowledge and truth comes from the embodied life and practice of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad is the living embodiment of the Quran. And again, I have to say, you know, without bias of, you know, me being a Muslim, this is the most well-preserved, documented, authenticated description and account of a human life and a human being that there's been throughout history. It's one of the highest Islamic sciences to preserve the things that we know about the prophetic biography. So there's the biography, there's like the life story of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and that's a particular science in Islam. So one of these books about the biography of the Prophet Muhammad that I can recommend, peace be upon him, was written by a British scholar and convert to Islam named Martin Lings. Martin Lings was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. So if people know of C.S. Lewis, the great Christian mystic and author and scholar, uh, he was contemporaries with Martin Lings. And some people have said Martin Lings maybe is like the Muslim C.S. Lewis. But Martin Lings wrote a really beautiful biography of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, it's called Muhammad, his life based on the earliest sources. Again, you know, these are things that Muslims do have different opinions about. So there will be people that will hear me say this and say, no, don't tell them that one. Tell them read the sealed nectar or tell them read, you know, these are my personal recommendations. This is a, it's a green book, Muhammad, his life based on the earliest sources. That one's also available on audible, on audible. And I just think it's a really beautifully written account of the Prophet Muhammad's life. And he pulls no punches. You know what I mean? He talks about the things that are now seen as controversial in the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And if people want to ask about those things, I'm not shy about talking about those either. So those are some of the two. There's a whole other area of literature about the Prophet Muhammad called the Hadith, peace be upon him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that these are more uh, specific accounts of things that he said or did or things that he was present when those things happened. Now, that those accounts, that's where we really say that these are the most well-preserved, detailed accounts of the life of a human being, um, of anyone in, in the history of the world. And those can be found in different places. You know, there are different hadith books that you can pick up and get. I would say that those are going to be very similar to the Quran where those hadith are not necessarily the place where you would learn rules and laws and understanding of Islam. Those are things and stories and narratives about the Prophet's life. You know, I said earlier that the Quran isn't really a handbook on how to live as a Muslim. And you say, okay, well, well what would that be? Um, 
and again, these are, you know, these are each one in an ocean of literature about the religion of Islam. But people always say, like, where can I start? So for people who are interested in being a Muslim, there's a text called Being Muslim. It's written by a friend of mine named Dr. Asad Tarsin, A-S-A-D, Tarsin, T-A-R-S-I-N. He is one of the primary immediate students of a great uh, uh, English-speaking American scholar named Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, who's one of our teachers and one of our friends. Being Muslim is called a practical handbook. And so for a person who wants to get the basics of the religion of Islam, uh, that's a really good one. And, and I actually facilitated a year and a half long class where we had new Muslims and people that were coming back to Islam who maybe hadn't felt like practicing Muslims um, in Minneapolis, myself and my wife. And we went through that entire text and I did it, you know, having access to real scholars. I am not a scholar of the religion of Islam. It's important to know the difference. You know, there is a role for people who are inspired by the religion and love it and try to learn it and try to live it, you know, because we need encouragement. But it's really weird, you know, in America in particular, the whole rise of social media has given rise to like a social media influencer who is confused with being an Islamic scholar. And there are people that wear the clothes and talk the talk and all this kind of stuff. And I think they mean to do good. There are like poets and academics and activists and rappers that people confuse them with being spiritual guides and spiritual masters and religious teachers. And they're not that. Like a lot of these people didn't study that way. So it's important to know the difference. There is a role for, in Islam they call it a da'i, which basically means a, a preacher who encourages people and maybe is inspired and maybe has been given the ability to inspire other people. So there is a role for that, but we got to know the difference. So I'm not a scholar. I'm not, by traditional measures, even a serious student of Islam. It's like, I used to think I was, because in America, the bar is just pretty low. And it's kind of the wild, wild west. Anybody can say whatever they want. Anybody can make any claim they want. And I was actually in the role of an imam. But I was in a community where if you learn the Arabic alphabet, and you, you know what I'm saying, and, and you just dedicate your life to trying to learn whatever you can, then you, you can be the imam. You know, and so I, I did that job. And the imam doesn't mean even that you're a scholar. It just means that you have a leadership role amongst the people. And then I could also mention some people that if you just want to watch YouTube videos, again, these are going to be my personal teachers. These are going to be my personal choices for the Quran. But some recommendations for like, who can you watch on YouTube? Uh, imam Zaid Shakir was Muhammad Ali's spiritual advisor. He's a black American imam and sheikh who was an imam and then after that decided he wanted to learn more and so he went and actually studied in a variety of countries around the world uh, he's the co-founder of the first islamic accredited college in america imam zaid shakar is a really good one dr umar farooq abdallah abd hyphen allah dr umar farooq abdallah he's the person that speaks at the beginning of the own night video He's also an American scholar that converted to Islam and then studied all over the world for decades. Uh, really beautiful, inspirational leader and teacher. Uh, another one would be Hamza Yusuf. Hamza Yusuf is a bit of a controversial person. I love him. 
You know, I, I don't agree with, especially when he talks about current political affairs. I I don't agree with him on those things. And like, but he's somebody that I love. And when you hear him talk about the religion of Islam, I think it's profoundly beautiful. And so I recommend him. Dr. Sherman Jackson, Dr. Ingrid Matson, a preacher named Aisha Prime. She spells her name with an I, I-E-S-H-A, Prime, P-R-I-M-E. Uh, Sheikha Muslima. M-U-S-L-E-M-A, Permo, P-U-R-M-I-L, uh, classically a trained Islamic scholar. Uh, these are all people that I know as well and people that I love. Uh, there's a woman named Tamara, T-A-M-A-R-A, Gray, Tamara Gray, who's actually from Minnesota. Um, another English speaker that I would recommend really highly would be Ibrahim Osi, O-S-I, Effa, E-F-A, Sheikh Ibrahim Osi Effa. He is a uh, black British brother who went and studied among some of the greatest scholars in Yemen. I would recommend checking out the poet Amir Suleiman, A-M-I-R, Suleiman, S-U-L-A-I-M-A-N. He's been on my albums and things like that. Uh, he's not a scholar, he's a poet, but he's a really amazing person. Uh, man, we could go on and on. There's actually somebody named Omar, O-M-A-R, Suleiman, Omar Suleiman, who is also a classically trained Islamic scholar that, that we really love. So, you know, these are just some of the names. Oh, I'm sorry, let me not leave out Abdul Hakim Murad, who's also British, Abdul Hakim, H-A-K-E-E-M, Murad, M-U-R-A-D. I, I left out the sponsors on this episode. And, you know, we are sponsored by Zakat Foundation, and Zakat Foundation has been really supportive in this endeavor. We're sponsored by our brother Resma Minikim and his new book, The Quaking of America. We're sponsored and in, in partnership with UPF, Unity Productions Foundation. We are in partnership with Vice Gerent. I didn't do ads for them this time, but I just didn't want to break into talking about my spiritual journey with advertisements, and I'm sure that they'll all understand and support that. Um, but those are the sponsors for this podcast. I want to give a special shout out to Brendan Kelly, who is the producer of the podcast, who has been on vacation with his beautiful family. Uh, and he's also my partner in Travelers Media. I want to give a special shout out to Amna Mirza and Mansour Panawala and Ant and DJ Last Word, to Darian Washington and to everyone that's participated and, and helped out in this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please make sure to like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. It's really profoundly helpful when you do that. And so we'll close with that. And um, thank you for listening and for being on this journey with us. Uh, and we send you all the love and we greet you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.